I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Today we have a special podcast. Fintech Beat and FRT are teaming up. As many of you may have noticed, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, came to Washington to talk about his new cryptocurrency, Libra. But there was a lot more happening in the fintech universe. For a brief two weeks, we were like what Los Angeles is to basketball, the heart of the fintech universe, with meetings abounding during the IMF and World Bank meetings, IIF's annual membership meetings, and fintech week on the future of AI, data, cryptocurrencies, and of course, Libra. So this week, we're teaming up with Brad Carr, the head of digital strategy, over at IF for a joint IIF FinTech Beat podcast released on both channels to talk about all the news coming from the FinTech conferences and events of the last several weeks. Hey! Brad, I'm, uh, I guess I'm welcoming myself to your studio. So maybe we should get to a, a bit of a rundown as to all things fintech. Well, before you do, I like the fact you start with the Los Angeles basketball analogy. It was great to have you on our show earlier when uh, my, my then seven-year-old son asked you about the, the Warriors and uh, Clay Thompson's Achilles injury. But I'm a Lakers fan, so I'm glad to see LA back being the center of the universe, even if we do have to share the, the limelight across town. I don't know, man. I don't know. The Warriors were kind of back. You know, last game, they were doing okay. They were doing okay. And Washington is back. Actually, Mark Zuckerberg is back yes. uh, to talk about all things fintech, including uh, Libra. I mean, what did you get as to your sense as to the backdrop of issues really impacting these this 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 flurry of conferences on the future of fintech and finance here in Washington? Yeah, like you say, it's been a huge couple of weeks. I went in probably expecting that it was partly about stable coins and partly about data policy. Probably came out of it a little bit more with the emphasis on the data policy issues that seemed to be the most front of mind issue for a lot of the, the banks and insurers from around the world that were visiting. And within across bank policy, you know, it's a pretty multifaceted issue. You know, we're, we're talking about data sharing regimes across sectors, things like open banking, which of course is more advanced in a legislative sense in other countries than it is here in the US. Issues about the ethical use of data, how it's used in things like AI and machine learning, uh, how data is used and aggregated, and increasingly the reliance on the three cloud service providers, uh, data localization restrictions, and how that ties in with trade policy. You know, these were all really big issues that that I think you know, seem to be the ones most op- occupying the minds within the private sector, at least. You, you know, can I, can I just jump in? I mean, yeah. like when you think about that list, I mean, just what you've just said right there is kind of ridiculous. I mean, in terms of just the the, the scope of issues, we're talking about data, privacy, cloud, which is really a cybersecurity question as much as an efficiency question. Yep. And and then there was more. Yeah. and, And I guess, you know, one of the things that the official sector is really grappling with this is, of course, these are such multifaceted and multi, you know, cross sectoral issues and cross border issues. So it really challenges a lot of the existing uh, mandates and and the landscape of how regulation is done. 
you know, you've got traditionally the, the very clear mandates in the silos of the banking supervisor, the insurance supervisor, the security supervisor. And now you've got to look at the intersection across a completely different axis of the privacy commissioner, the data commissioner, the competition commissioner. And I think- We have a privacy commissioner in the United States? I'm not sure that we do here, <laughs> uh, but in a lot of other jurisdictions you do. And and which is also part of the point that, that firstly, there's this complex labyrinth of how each of these different mandates intersect. And then there's secondly, the fact that they intersect in different ways in different places, which makes it even harder to roll it up to some sort of global consensus. Well, you know, and that's that's something I always try to sort of convey here when you think about financial regulation and fintech, right? I mean, anytime that you're putting something on a platform and you have all these cross-border issues, just as much as we have our attention focused on what's happening on Capitol Hill with the regulation of banking or, or securities or something, you know, the cross-border nature of supervising these activities, along with the fact that different regulators in different countries could be responsible for the same thing. So in the United States, we may have conversations about what the banking regulators are doing with consumer data, but in another country, there actually is a privacy regulator of some sort who may or may not be working with the financial regulators. How does the US regulator know whom to call and, and, and vice versa? Totally. Um, On these issues, I mean, these are the kinds of things that people are trying to hash out over at the IIF meetings, you know, with the private market participants and over in the government official sector, um, closed door meetings over at the World Bank and, and the IMF. Yeah, and the private sector companies have got to work out how they navigate these rules that in a lot of cases are still emerging. You know, I think the- So non-rules. Well, yeah, how do you emerge? Potential rules or, you know, I think the it's when matrix. you look at privacy and I think the there's never going to be a singular data privacy regime around the world. You know, there are just so many different- cultural and jurisdictional issues that will always drive a lot of the the divergences. I think the emphasis has got to be on things like what the APEC data ecosystem has done on trying to focus on interoperability between those different national systems. Uh, I think that's a good template and one that I hope you know more of the the international multilateral discussions can can look to follow. I think you know we we should pick up on Libra and you know you're right that that of course that was extremely topical. You had the G7 stablecoins report come out at the same time. Uh, a couple of firms dropped out of the Libra Association. I think probably more of the debate needs to probably pivot to some of the other responses to to Libra and in particular around some of the central bank digital currency initiatives. I think there needs to be a lot of focus on what the PBOC is doing in China and and that's probably emerged a bit more in the last week or two. But we also had some, I thought, some great discussions and you joined us for a panel uh, on the future of money where you and Christian Carlo and uh, and also the Bank of Canada Deputy Governor Tim Lane and others joined. I think Giancarlo's been out there talking about the need for a digital dollar Mark Carney has talked about, you know, possibly what he called the uh, synthetic hegemonic currency, kind of a, a digitized version of Bancor. Been interested in your thoughts on where you see that landscape heading, and perhaps what you took out of the the panel that you joined us for. Yeah, you know, that was a really interesting panel, and and uh, just sort of listening to others, including I, I think you had the CEO of Visa Europe as, yes, as well. Yes, Child Hog. Yes, and, yep. and I think it's 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 all the more significant. Um, you know, circling back to your initial observation that you know. Uh, even prior to Mark Zuckerberg's comments on on Libra, you had some of the big uh, uh, credit cards uh, sort of jumping out of the, the the Libra Association, and there are these questions arising as to uh, what the Libra project will mean, where you have fewer payment firms and more of a reliance. If assuming again yeah. that the membership sort of stays the same, on uh, other kinds of uh, sort of technology firms and, and venture capital firms like like the Ubers and the Lyfts that are, are still apparently in, and then some of the VC firms. And, and what does this mean 
for international payments when, again, some of the major drivers of the Libra Association have decided to, at least for the moment, go their own separate ways. But as, as you said, just the idea of this launch of the Libra Association still got everybody's attention, uh, 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 particularly in, in, in the uh, central banking community to think through, well, what kind of regulatory response on the one hand do we need for private stable coins? And then do we need ourselves to issue our own sort of official response? And, and, and Carney's <laughs> Carney's parting shots, not just just to stable coins, but also to the U.S. dollar and to the hegemony of the U.S. dollar was was I you know I'm, I'm sure a catalyst for thinking not only in the World Bank and the IMF, but also uh, in in Christian Carlo's remarks about you know how do you preserve the uh, hegemony and the dominance of the dollar and 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 those were some of his comments that he had shared on our panel. Um, but again, that regulatory question still pervades uh, uh, questions of politics, right? And one of the things that I had obs- uh, observed was this question as to how do you regulate money is itself occurring on the backdrop of, of how we define and think about money, right? I mean, when you think about money as, on the one hand, uh, uh, an instrument of payment, a store of value, and a unit of account, once you start to digitize a currency, it starts to change what each of those categories mean. So as an instrument of payment, the fact that you can create a, basically a digital bearer instrument that you can uh, transmit money online immediately, I mean, that's changing our very conceptualization of what an instrument of payment is. And then when you start to program money, then you start to develop all these additional use cases beyond these legacy use cases uh, where you can create different kinds of contracts or, or, or social networks. And we're still calling it money. And, and this puts new kinds of pressures on uh, both regulators and market participants as they are in part responding to consumer demand, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, and, and, and trying to figure out, well, what is it that people want? What is it that they need? And then how do we also ensure stability in our markets? And I really did like that, uh, you know, the IF was trying to sort of get ahead of the curve here to figure out exactly what that, that means. And um, uh, I, I do think it's going to be something that we'll all be returning to. Yeah, and there's the issue of you know what does this do in terms of the funding profiles of banks? You know, if the ability of if consumers have the ability to be able to go and deposit their money directly in the central bank, uh, what will that do to consumer patterns? The we have a net stable funding ratio and a liquidity coverage ratio that are wholly built on the assumption that retail deposits in commercial banks is the sticky stable source of funding. And, and the question as to what would it do to banks? Yeah, totally. Uh, uh, you know, depending on what approach one wants to take. You know, a lot of times when we throw around words like central bank digital currencies, I think the first thing that the IMF um, emphasizes is, hey, you know, th- that term in and of itself has become somewhat loaded because they're just different models. So many different models, totally. A- a- as to how that would actually be, yeah. be operationalized. Yeah, but it does throw up the scenario perhaps where in some of those models, you could have banks being disintermediated on the deposit side, yeah. but you still want the commercial banks to be doing the lending in the economy. And you have an asymmetry that I think is a, a difficult one to grapple with and, and to play out. One of the other big themes of the week I thought was, was about financial inclusion. And a few people picked up in the digital currency context, the notion perhaps of financial exclusion. And that when we see countries in Sweden leading the way, moving towards a cash light or cash less economy, um, that if there is a reliance on digital channels for all means of money, you know, does the technology infrastructure and the cost to access that necessarily keep up? 
Um, Sweden and, and Canada are two countries that have spoken about the need to ensure that broadband connectivity into their remote areas keeps pace and stretches. Um, Hugh Van Steenis of the Bank of England picked that up when we were talking further about his future of finance report. But also, I was really intrigued with a, a point that uh, Jaco Grobler, the Chief Risk Officer at First Train Bank from South Africa, made, and that what he's observed across Africa is that the banks increasingly are investing in Western technology, whilst the telcos in Africa are adopting Chinese technology. And he, that's, he, that's, he opened that's, a door. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. That's a really- I, I mean, as, as to whether or not is that a uh, sort of a matter of, of a business strategy or, or regulatory pressure or, or regulatory. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if you're a bank and you're regulated as a bank, as a financial institution, and you're, you're, you're in contact with your regulators more, you know, it, it, it may be more uh, acceptable to think about your, your, your strategy for upgrading your system where you go to sort of more familiar faces. And if you're a telco with less uh, experience with your financial regulators, you know, uh, or, or you're, you're, you're driven by a, a more explicit innovation imperative, you may, you may sort of sit somewhere else on, yeah, totally. on sort of the risk reward continuum. So there's really interesting issues that throws up. You know, firstly, in terms of interoperability in a technical sense between banks and telcos, as well as you know, where I, I suspect there's a, a political element to it um, in some jurisdictions at least. I'll quickly just flag a couple of other points that I, th- I thought were really interesting. Uh, we had a great panel on quantum computing, uh, which included Michael Brett of Rigetti. Michael was our first repeat guest on FRT before yourself today joining us as our second. Um, and that panel made the point, obviously, that, that quantum is a lot closer in reality than many have thought. And that's probably been underlined since our meeting with, with Google's announcement of quantum supremacy. Um, but one point I thought was really striking was that some of the nefarious parties are perhaps taking locked data sets now with the intent of being able to crack those later once they have the, the quantum technology available. Uh, a pretty confronting point that I know some of the chief risk officers in the audience uh, reacted to. Another was, uh, and, and at the IEF, we've launched a, a project with jointly with Deloitte looking at what are the success factors and the barriers in digital transformation? And uh, and a lot of the firms we've spoken to in the early stages have called DBS Bank out as the, the firm that they most admire. So, so, so when you say digital transformation, do you mean just in terms of upgrading? Internally within, well... Internally within the organization, but part of the question is how do you define that and is it about changing how you do things or is it about fundamentally changing the customer interface? On the, and, on the and, front end or, or, or back end? Yeah, and, and more often than not, it's both of those, but sometimes with different emphases. But repeatedly, we've heard a lot of firms emphasize that they identify DBS Bank out of Singapore as the firm that they most admire. And I got the chance on stage to ask Piyush Gupta, the, the CEO of DBS, who he most admires, who he looks to for inspiration in digital transformation. He was very quick to cite both Ping An Group and Alibaba as the the two that he sees as the the significant leaders. You know, and I and I, and I think that's that's telling. I mean, like here, even here in the, in the states, uh, more more often than not, I mean, when you're behind closed doors, when you're talking to executives as to sort of what is your 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 business model, uh, you do look to, to Alibaba. You're probably not looking to yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Libra right now just because of the, 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 the blowback, but what they've been able to achieve is, is uh, pretty uh, significant. Certainly in areas like small business lending off where they have the data around the receivables and the like. Um, look, lastly, I should mention sustainable and, and beyond the digital space that I tend to focus on, uh, sustainable finance and, and climate risk was a big theme out of our meeting. Um, one point I would just mention is, you know, I think there's a growing recognition that a lot of the metrics around carbon footprints are 
reasonably mature, whereas there, um, there's nothing like that yet for plastics metrics. And increasingly, investors are asking questions about the level of plastics exposure. Um, that might be somewhere where there's an opportunity for for fintech and, and sustainable uh, coexisting. That's uh, an area that we'll be putting more focus on going forward. Um, but Chris, let's pivot now to, to FinTech Week. And I thought you did a fantastic job convening DC FinTech Week. You know, I thought my nine panels and two roundtables would be enough to kill me, but you had a whole week and with some- I'm fan- still sleeping. <laughs> still catching up. You had some fantastic draw card speakers and you had a series of different venues around town just to, to add to your logistical challenges. Um, related to one of the, the big data topics we mentioned and specifically on data sharing, I thought you had an excellent open banking panel uh, with people like Andreas Warburg, Stock of City and, and Sam Torsig of Cabbage. But what really stood out for you across the, the FinTech Week program? So, you know, um, we are in, in, in Washington, D.C., and, and I think uh, as in a, in an attempt to sort of draw together the, the very disparate pieces of uh, the Washington, D.C. FinTech community and also the, the regulators, uh, I think there's always some uh, interest in, in what uh, the U.S. regulators are, are, are going to say and then obviously to have a response to it. The, the very fact that on Wednesday, on our very on our third day, a couple of hours after uh, Mark Zuckerberg's initial comments on Libra, we had Jay Clayton on stage and then some of the major heads of the uh, blockchain companies like uh, CEO of, of, of Ripple, uh, Brad Garlinghouse, and the co-founder of Ethereum uh, with Joe Lubin. I mean, that's that, the, that provided a particularly interesting insight into uh, not only their views on regulation, but but also their their views on uh, the Libra cryptocurrency project, and that's something that we've done in the last couple of uh, podcasts with them. Uh, but but I think I'm going to just sort of focus on interesting postures, sort of uh, news that may not have been necessarily picked up uh, by some of the keynotes. You know, we had Ken Blanco, who is the uh, director of FinCEN, and he was our sort of kickoff um, uh, keynote. And his perspective as to the applicability of the Bank Secrecy Act, particularly to uh, crypto, uh, cryptocurrency firms and really to DeFi uh, more broadly, was extremely transparent. He was very clear in terms of his expectations of the cryptocurrency community. Uh, he was uh, not in any kind of uh, posture of uh, sort of giving in on, on in terms of rethinking how the BSA is is going to be operationalized, whether or not it be to uh, digital wallets or to uh, crypto exchanges. Uh, he was very clear that in his view, uh, the cryptocurrency community and the emerging operators understood, or at least should understand, the basic parameters of the BSA, and. Uh, you know, uh, 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 I think he did a very admirable uh, and, and engaging job of uh, making that clear. And I think there, there have been a lot of uh, remarks lately about the ambiguity of the scope of the BSA and whether or not it applies. And, and I think I, think I, w- I would describe Ken Blanco's approach as sort of the Oprah Winfrey approach to, to regulation instead of the, and you have a car, and you have a car. <laughs> it's like, no, you're regulated, and you're regulated, you're all regulated now. But, but seriously, I, I think that, that he did a great job of um, making very clear that FinCEN's uh, perspective is going to be uh, very clear and that he's going to be on the lookout. And there's not nearly as much ambiguity as, as at least uh, many in the industry would, would uh, seem to, to suggest. We also had very interesting uh, comments from CFTC Chairman uh, Heath Tarbert. Um, 
he this was perhaps his first public appearance since uh, announcing from his perspective uh, that Ether is a, a commodity. He then said that he expected at least uh, six months from now the possibility of Ether derivatives. Uh, I, I would assume Ether futures contracts, uh, which which was an interesting uh, new development. Uh, and then he had he had made some very interesting observations as to his view as to I don't even know how to call it the transmutability of securities into or, of of crypto securities into crypto commodities. You know, sort of saying, hey, look, you know, not only can you have a uh, a, a crypto security that can tra- can transform uh, itself into being a commodity, but you know, it can also find its way back into the securities law world. And that's a topic that I would uh, pick up later with the SEC's uh, chairman, Jay Clayton. Um, I think uh, Yelena McWilliams is uh, uh, an extraordinarily engaging and interesting speaker. She made a great uh, uh, series of comments as to sort of her views um, with the FDIC's involvement in uh, uh, fintech regulation. Uh, this idea of, of not necessarily just just leveling the playing field, but really making sure that consumers themselves know what kind of entity that they're dealing with is going to be, I think, a, something that she's going to be emphasizing. Uh, one of the side notes that I think people lost, which I thought was extremely interesting, is that a bunch of fintechs apparently, sort of the non-deposit-taking institutions, sort of advertise themselves at times online as being FDIC insured when they're not. Yes, she made a big point about that, didn't she? She, she did. Yeah. She did. And 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 sort of proposed this idea of figuring out a way for the FDIC to make clear, almost like a, 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 a digital signature uh, for the FDIC online so that people know the same way when you walk into an old school sort of bank branch that, you know, your deposits are going to be protected or or, or not. She's very big on both sides of the coin there, and and without meaning to not intended, without meaning to make us all sound too familiar, we had Yelena on last week actually on episode fifty of FRT, and uh, as well as the point you made there that that you know, where she related about ensuring that consumers have complete visibility, she's also been very big on ensuring that the innovation that's delivered by regulated banks is customer led, mm. uh, and she gave us a great example about a, a bank in the Amish uh, region in in Pennsylvania, uh, Bird in Hand Bank that. Uh, has managed to de- deliver and, and enable innovations that are very much aligned to where the Amish farmers need services in the markets, not by using technology that would be incompatible with their uh, their lifestyle requirements. And I thought it was just a great example of how you know she is very hot on this issue that innovation needs to be customer led, not technology led. Yeah, and, and and I think that also informs sort of her view of customer protection. Like, hey, what what yes. do people need? That's where they'll go, and so how do you provide then the protections for where uh, those customers are, are are ultimately going? Safe innovation for customers. Yep. And then uh, Jay Clayton's remarks uh, were were very very interesting. Um, you know, he he did not speak directly uh, to Mark Zuckerberg's testimony, but he did kind of go out of his way to talk a lot about the issue that that we brought up a bit with uh, Jay Clayton. Uh, which is again the, the ability of, uh, of securities to become commodities and 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 the like, and uh, he had his own observations about uh, stable coins. But I think that the takeaway from Clayton's remarks, at least my uh, takeaway, was number one uh, that there is an institutional awareness that if we're, if there is going to be an adoption of this idea that a financial product can be a commodity and then a security. Now he had actually said that. That it, that a financial product could be a, 
commodity and to security at the same time. And, and that is true. Um, you know, generally through the interagency process, one of the two, and it's usually the, the CFTC then sort of, uh, takes a back seat to primary supervision wherever you do have that kind of dual status. But, you know, how do you exercise supervision when one day a financial product could be a security, a crypto product, for lack of a better word, could, could be a, a security. And then it evolves because it has been sufficiently decentralized into a commodity. And then there's a fork and the forked asset is now a security again. You know, like when you move, when something evolves or devolves or however you want to describe it, you know, there is, I think, uh, some thinking that, that, that folks are trying to, to figure out, like, how do you exercise oversight? And it's not just from a perspective of market integrity. It's also from a transparency perspective for issuers yeah. and for intermediaries who are hosting these assets on their platforms or on their exchanges, because obviously you need the proper licenses depending on the financial product uh, that is in question. And I think that that was something uh, that that was a matter of, of considerable uh, interest uh, uh, on that uh, panel. And then we obviously uh, rounded it up with uh, both Brad Garlinghouse and, and, and Joe Lubin, sort of our, our, our interesting industry speakers. And we just had two podcasts uh, with each of them last week. And they were highly engaged in this question. On the one hand, for, our, for Brad Garlinghouse, you know, this very interesting question of you know, regulatory uncertainty and sort of running to DC as opposed to running away from DC. They just established uh, a, a big Washington uh, uh, office and a presence to um, uh, engage policymakers. Um, as, 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 as you know, there's been just a, an enormous effort to make sure that people just know what is a blockchain, what is a forked asset, yeah. and to make sure that there's um, just conceptual uh, clarity. And I think that they've invested a lot of um, time uh, especially for a blockchain company, into that. And then Joe, Joe Lubin is moving to upgrade the Ethereum blockchain, moving from a proof of work to a proof of stake um, consensus mechanism. And he talked about uh, what that meant. And, and, and both had extremely choice words for Libra, which I guess is not to be uh, uh, too surprising uh, since, since I think that, that Libra has awakened a good deal of, uh, uh, of of concern in the regulatory community about what the implications for cryptocurrencies are, n not just in capital markets, but again, for uh, monetary systems. So it was a really, really, really full week, uh, lots of, of, of great conversations, and you know, was really, I think, just topping off uh, a series of, of, of big conferences here in Washington, D.C., Look, I also liked the, the international regulator session that you had on the Monday. Uh, Joe Noss of the FSB, Tom Mutton of the Bank of England, and a couple of others. I really liked the, the point that Tom emphasised in that discussion on the need for regulation to be dynamic, or, or I might say agile. And I think it aligns very much with a, a key point that, that I've gravitated to, that as we've got into exploring issues like the adoption of machine learning, cloud uh, that we touched on, you know, I think there's a, a pivot from regulation perhaps to more supervision and, and guidelines. And the need perhaps for regulation to be in a form that is principles-based such that it can stand the test of time, stand the evolution, the emergence of new technologies, but that that needs to be complemented with active and rigorous supervision and, and in some cases guidelines which can be updated more um, more rapidly, more uh, on an ongoing basis. I thought Tom made that point really well. Yeah, you know, uh, Tom is actually was one of the, the earlier guests on the FinTech Beak program and 
you know, what the Bank of England is doing with regards to fintech is is certainly for in the context of Europe, uh, you know, they are really unique, um, and they're 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 experimenting with all kinds of very interesting uh, programs that. That first panel, I think, helped to highlight because we Indeed. had uh, the Bank of, of England, uh, we had the head of fintech for the Bank of Japan, uh, the FSB and others. The Bank of Italy as well. I think. Bank of Eng- the, the deputy governor of the Bank of, of Italy. And when you sort of see the different central banks toying with new ways to, to, to allow these fintechs to either, in the case of Bank of England, perhaps access the Bank of England's balance sheet, which is, which is, which is very uh, interesting. Uh, or whether or not you're trying to figure out how central banks should develop different kinds of regulatory sandboxes, because what a what a, a a central bank's sandbox is has to be a little bit different from what a capital markets uh, sort of consumer facing sandbox would be, just because of their different mandates. And so they're kind of mm, trying yeah, to yeah. think through, okay, well, if I want experimentation, you know, how do I make sure that it's still in a way that allows me to operationalize my monetary policy, for example, uh, while at the same time making sure that my own domestic financial center remains internationally uh, competitive and, and stable. And just sort of seeing that conversation, particularly, you know, with when you think about the Bank of Japan, you're not really uh, you know they're not on the on the front lines or on the front pages of those kinds of discussions, and they have an ex- a very different uh, consumer market and a very very different monetary policy. And just sort of listening to how they want to uh, operationalize or think through their um, uh, uh, financial technology innovation strategy, it, it just throws into relief. I think uh, what we were discussing at the outset, which is you know there are just lots of differences, not in terms of only who's responsible for what, but but. Uh, what different consumers in different countries want and and how both um, the market and uh, regulators are responding. And you've alluded to the the one final takeaway from FinTech Week I wanted to raise uh, when you use the word sandbox there. Um, it was notable also during the week that the, the GFIN, the Global Financial Innovation Network, was expanded now to 50 members and significantly with a substantive US presence. It previously had the CFBP only from the US, uh, but it added, added the SEC, the OCC, the FDIC. Um, I thought it was great to hear and, from- and, and New York. Yes, yes, good yeah. point, yes. But it was great, state great to hear from uh, Laura Navratnam of the FCA who spoke at FinTech Week and obviously the FCA have been one that's made the early running on this. We at the IAF were very keen to see the GFIN gather legs and also to diversify its membership both across jurisdictions but also to get beyond just the securities regulators that were its initial founding members. Uh, so I thought it was very welcoming to see this expansion more into the, the prudential space as well. Well, you know, and and, and I uh, neglected to mention also we had a, a great uh, keynote from Linda Lacewell, who's the superintendent of the Department of Financial Services for the state of New York, and she also had uh, uh, Matt Homer, who is was recently um, appointed as the head of sort of fintech innovation for uh, the DFS, and you know she had a lot of very uh, uh, important uh, sort of the, I guess they they did the uh, one two sort of approach on on things. When you think about the state level, on the one hand, they are joining uh, GFIN, but at the same time, the, their their mandate is so broad at the state level that they're thinking about not only uh, uh, banking, insurance, and cryptocurrency regulation. And you know, I, I should emphasize that we had a lot of very very productive conversations, particularly on day two on on, on Capitol Hill, right across the street from the Senate, on um, artificial intelligence bias. 
how do you get the most out of artificial intelligence and to operationalize it in a way that you're not sort of baking in bias, uh, but also at the same time, you know, you're, you're, you're truly expanding markets and, and opportunities. And I think that uh, Linda's message was was also much like Ken Blanco's message, very 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 clear. I mean, yeah. she 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 wanted to make sure that if you're operating in New York, and if you're dealing with uh, New York uh, consumers, you know, she's going to be on the watch uh, to make sure that uh, whatever algorithms and um, uh, uh, credit models that you're using, you know, can can pass uh, muster uh, and and not just sort of federal. Uh, fair lending, but I'm, I'm sure she's thinking about a lot of the uh, uh, New York State uh, rules and requirements as well. But at the same time, just as she's doing that, uh, I think that they are very much uh, inclined to think about the competitiveness of New York as a place to do business, and and that's why I think you're you're, you're seeing yeah. them also um, uh, focus on their international engagement. And and I know for a fact that 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 is something that they have uh, thought deeply about. Chris, we're hitting time and we don't want to outstay each other's welcome on our respective, uh, each other's programs here. Um, if I can recap quickly on a couple of the things, I, I really like the emphasis on the, the Bank Secrecy Act that you've raised and, and Ken Blanco's comments that he made at FinTech Week um, and where there's the ability to hopefully close some of the uncertainty there. Uh, but obviously, that's a, a big topical issue and a, and a journey still ahead. We've talked about the many complications with data policy, uh, the many, many, uh, really, as we, we ran through those. But I'm also glad that you emphasise the, the different models of central bank digital currencies. And I think this is a really big issue going forward, the key design considerations in those various models. And I think there's a lot more to do on, on how those will potentially impact on the market, the various players within the market, and fundamentally on, on how we think about money. Uh, looking ahead on FRT, I'm going to be speaking with Hugh Van Steenus of the Bank of England on the future of finance report that he prepared for the Governor Mark Carney. We'll also be at the Singapore FinTech Festival. Um, Chris, tell me, what do you have coming up in the near term on FinTech Beat? Well, as I said, we've had these really great interviews on uh, cryptocurrencies uh, with Joe Lubin and with Brad Garlinghouse. And so what we're going to do now is focus to other broader issues in the FinTech community. And we'll be having some uh, leading lights on open banking and really the, the challenge of data, uh, sort of leveraging what we did during the DC FinTech Week. Well, there's plenty more to look forward to there. So thank you, Chris, and thank you all for joining us on FinTech Beat and FRT. Please tune in again on both programs via your favorite podcast apps. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer, DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-D-R-D-R. CQ Roll Call. We'd love to hear from you. Leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.